You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Welcome. We're glad you're here. I want to invite you to grab your Bible and to get ready to study God's Word together. Um, if, usually, I start my sermons by saying, um, if you have a Bible, you should open it to this particular page. Um, I'm not going to talk at all about the Bible today. I'm kidding. Yeah, a girl. See, you know... You know, we're going to be all over the scriptures. Um, and so it might be just helpful if you follow along with me here. Uh, we're going to start in, in um, the book of Esther, verse chapter, uh, sorry, chapter four, verse 13 here in the next couple minutes. But then from there, we're going to be all over the place. Um, the reason for that is because I want to, I want to talk to, to you today, especially um, about where we see harvest going in the days ahead and what kinds of things are we doing. I titled the sermon, What Are We Even Doing Here? Um, have you guys ever uh, heard the saying, a, a camel is a horse built by a committee? No? It's kind of true though, right? I mean, it's not really true. It's not like God was in heaven and asking people their opinions. The camel's a camel. But that's a business saying that people use often. Uh, If you're in a boardroom and an idea comes up and it's not well thought through or focused, people will be like, that's a camel. And you know what it's like to be in a committee. Uh, It's part of the fallen world is to be in committees. And um, you sit in this committee in a room full of people and you... Usually people don't want to say anything really um, straightforward to the other people in the committee because, you know, you're friends or maybe you don't know them that well or whatever. And um, the idea comes up and you're like, okay, we're going to try to put on this particular uh, party for the whole, the party planning committee, right? So we're going to put the party. Well, one person has an opinion about like, oh, we should have a food truck and Everybody else is like, oh, that's, that's fine. And somebody else says, we should have a thousand balloons. And the other person says that we should, we should actually have a, a carnival with a big Ferris wheel and blah, blah, blah. And they go around and around and they have all the ideas. They put them on the board. And usually what ends up happening is that nobody's got the, you know, some people think some of those ideas are really bad, but they don't want to say it because, you know, they're your friends or whatever. This is the nature of a committee, you don't want to put anybody down. There's usually not any strong-handed leader of the committee who says no, or you know, you report that person to the boss. So in the end, what do you end up with? Some monstrosity that happens on a you know, Thursday afternoon, and you're like, what in the world is this thing? And the answer is it's a, it's a camel. It's a camel. You compare <clears throat> that kind of uh, approach to the approach that a sculptor takes. See, a sculptor is really, really focused on exactly what they want the sculpture to look like. So you're going to sculpt a horse. When the sculptor gets in there and he starts cutting, he'll cut away everything that doesn't look like a horse. Take his hammer and chisel and he'll cut everything away that doesn't look like a horse. And so when the hump is there, the camel hump, he'll be like, this is not a horse. And he gets rid of it. One approach is just kind of amalgamation of all the different things and we can do all of these things because all of them are just fun and awesome. And the other is no, there's a certain thing we're after. And it's gonna require us to be focused about that thing, to define it clearly, to picture it clearly. So what are we trying to make? What's our sculpture here at Harvest? What do we want to do? Yeah, so the question is, what are we supposed to be doing here? Uh, The church, historically, has always had this line that says that Harvest uh, exists to make disciples in obedience to the Great Commission. That's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. Every church worth its salt is going to say that we're here to make a disciple. A genuine follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, The challenge is that most churches don't define that. Most Christians don't define that. We know the word is used in scripture, disciple, but we don't ever stop and think, okay, what does it really look like to follow Jesus? What, What marks or character traits do disciples have? And more importantly, if we as a church are gonna make disciples, 
What kind of disciples are we making? Well, we spent a lot of time over the last year and and a bit thinking through that question at Harvest. What are the marks of the kinds of disciples that we want to make? And so we came up with four uh, phrases that describe the disciples that we want to make. Here they are. We think that the harvest kinds of, kind of disciple, the person that we want to be on mission and the person that we want to multiply throughout Chicagoland and perhaps around the world is one uniquely planted, deeply rooted, carefully pruned, and persistently fruitful. Now, I want to explain each one of those. This is going to be a Bible study. Each one comes from a particular passage of scripture or each one comes from an understanding of scripture as a whole and what it's trying to say about what a disciple is supposed to be and do, okay? So let's start with the first one, uniquely planted. The disciple is uniquely planted. Um, One of the greatest stories in the entire world, quite honestly, is Esther. In the Hebrew scriptures, the book of Esther. A lot of people, if you're new to the faith, you probably never heard it. Uh, Other people might have heard the story of Esther when they were little and they were reading some stuff, you know, within their little Bible storybook or whatever, but never got into the entire story. It is a remarkable story. So here, let me give it to you. There's a king, his name is King Ahasuerus, and uh, he is married to a woman uh, named Vashti. King Ahasuerus, Queen Vashti, they decide that they want to have a big uh, party. Probably the king decides it, and the queen's like, yeah, okay. Now, the parties in those days were not the kinds of parties that you, you would have, like, after church today. You know, like, you go to some, someone's house or whatever, and you sit there from 1 o'clock, and then when 3.30 rolls around, the pe- you, people who are hosting you are thinking, when, you, you could go now you know, please leave. They're not short like that. The parties that they would throw then would last days. In this case, weeks. (laughs) So one week into the party, you gotta be thinking, one of the things that they did a lot, of course, in the parties was drink. In this particular party, they had separated the men and the women. So Queen Vashti had all of her girlfriends and uh, King Ahasuerus had all the dudes together. And all the dudes are, are drinking and partying seven straight days. And finally, on the seventh day, when I'm quite sure very few of them were sober, the king says, maybe prompted by someone else, maybe just in his own head, he's trying to impress his friends. He says, dudes, have you seen my wife? She is so hot. You should have a look at her. And the other drunk guys are like, we would like that a lot. So he sends word over to the queen who's having her own little party. And the the word is, hey, can you put a little something, something on and bring it over so you can do a little twirl in front of my drunk friends so they can ogle you and think impure thoughts? And Queen Vashti says, um, no. I don't think I will. Which of course is against the law. You're not supposed to say no to the king. So, instead of them bringing, the servant coming and bringing Vashti back, he just comes alone and he's like, yeah, she doesn't want to do it. And the king's like, what? What do you mean she doesn't want to do it? She doesn't have a choice. How dare she? And all the friends are like, yes, exactly. How dare she? Not only is she doing this, she's doing it in public before all of us. Can you imagine when this kind of, this news filters out into the, into the society and Every man is asking his wife to do something and she's like, um, no. How bad is this gonna be? We gotta put a stop to it right now. The king says, that's right. Kick her out. He does. Vashti's gone. Kick to the curb. Well, we need a new queen. How are we gonna do it? And the drunk king says, we should have a beauty pageant. We should get all the women from all of the land, all the best looking ones. And what they'll do is they'll come in and we will give them a year of a beauty treatment. Guys, even I would look good after a year of beauty treatment. You know what I mean? Like this is how I look with like five minutes. Can you imagine a year? It'd be amazing. Year of beauty treatment. And then it all built up to one night. You got one night to try things out with the king. If he liked you, 
You can stick around and be his wife. That's the, you mean, that's the win. If not, you get to go into his harem, which is just a big group of women that he gets to play around with when he wants to. So all the women from all the land, they get gathered up together and they go into this grand beauty pageant. One of them is a woman named Esther. Esther is a Jewish woman. That's not something that you would tell everybody in those days, by the way. It's not like, oh, she's, I'm Jewish. Don't you, you know, don't you love my religion? Let's, let's endorse and embrace all the different viewpoints. Actually, no. You would hide some of that. There were lots of Jewish people around. It was expected that you would worship the kings and those sorts of things and the other gods of the day. And so the Jews didn't always like say, yeah, we don't worship all those gods. You know, just keep your head down and keep going. So anyway, she's a Jewish woman. She has a father who's actually her uncle. Um, His name's Mordecai. So he brought her up. They come and get her. They take her off to the the kingdom. Uh, She does her year of beauty treatment. The king goes through all the other women in the land. And then on the given night, Esther goes into him. And like the days after, he's like, he's so entranced with Esther. He's like, we have found our queen. So... They, they have a big party, right? Slay, queen. And there she is, Queen Esther. Meanwhile, there's this guy. His name is Haman. And he's, been, he's a political animal, this guy. He started, he's climbing up through the ranks of the kingdom. And he gets really close to the top. I mean, he becomes a real advisor to the king. And when he gets to the point where he's a real advisor to the king, this guy's really pompous, loves people to treat him with all sorts of regard. And so he asks the king one day, hey, could you make a law that wherever I go, people will bow down to me? This is the law I put in place here at Harvest for the staff just this week. So can you, can you make a law that everyone will bow down to me? And the king's like, man, you're a good dude. And yeah, sure. So he makes this law, and so Haman's going out, and he's walking around, and he's bowing, bow, 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 bow. Everyone's bowing, except for Mordecai. Remember, Esther's uncle slash father? He's a Jewish man, and he's like, I'm not going to bow down to you. I bow bow down to Yahweh, that's it. And he's the only one who won't bow down, and so Haman's so mad keeps telling him, you better bow down, you'd be in trouble. Mordecai's like, bring it. Doesn't, I don't care, doesn't matter, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it, and I'm not doing it. So finally, uh, Haman realizes that Mordecai's a Jewish man, and he says, wait a minute, he's not the only Jewish guy, there's all sorts of these Jewish people who won't, aren't willing to bow down to me or to anyone else, even the king. They're not willing to bow down because uh, of their faith in God, in Yahweh. And there's so many of them among us. What if they all gather together? They could form an army and destroy all of us, right? So he goes to the king and he says, hey, king, you need to make a law because there's these these people who are hiding among us and they're going to probably gather together one day. There's these Jewish people. They're going to form an army. We need to kill them off before anything like that happens. And the king's like, ooh, yeah, that is a really good idea. National security stuff. And so he does. Haman is actually kind of the prototypical Hitler. And he gets a decree, an irreversible decree, and he walks out of the the, um, throne room with it, and he walks down and he finds Mordecai, and he goes, ha-ha, see what I've got? You're a dead man. Mordecai sees the decree, and he realizes, oh my goodness, all of us are going to die. What in the world are we going to do? All the Jewish people are going to die. There's nothing we can do. There's no one who can... (gasps) Wait a minute. Esther. Like, she's, she's Jewish. She's in the kingdom. In fact, she has more access to the king than anyone else. He, he loves her, adores her, chose her over all the others. What if, what if Esther went in and told the king that what Haman was planning was wicked? Yes, we'll do that. Mordecai sends word to Esther. Esther, of course, replies and says, listen, you don't understand. If I go into the king uninvited, I'm dead. He's shown a propensity to get rid of the last queens. So like, he'll just get rid of me. Mordecai says, no, 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 you have to do it. You have to do it. This is our only chance. 
Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, them being the messengers. Don't, don't think to yourself, Esther, that in the king's palace you'll escape any more than all the other Jews. Like, they're gonna find out you're Jewish. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. It's not, God's not gonna leave us out. He's promised things to us. He's gonna deliver us, okay? But you and your father's house, they're gonna perish. And who knows, Esther, who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, think through how you ended up getting there. I mean, what kind of, what kind of kingdom has the, the queen uh, kicked out because she's not gonna do a little sexy twirl for the king? I mean, this doesn't happen. And then what kingdom does a beauty pageant? And what, how in the world did you get chosen out of all these people? Don't you see you're, you're uniquely planted for this one moment. And Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Okay. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. And then I will go to the king. Though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai, I see that, God, that somehow I've been placed here. Do you know the name of God is not in this book? Like if I came to you right now and I said, what's the book of Esther about? You'd probably be like, well, it's about Esther and Mordecai and Haman and Hazuerus. What's, that? what's the book of Esther about? The answer is the book of Esther is about God. Yeah, but his name's not in there. Yes, but his fingerprints are everywhere. He has woven the tapestry of all these people's lives in just such a way that they're in the unique spot that they need to be in with the unique giftings and courage and abilities that he wanted just then. You could read your entire Bible and you will find that this is actually the way it works over and over again. Have you ever thought about Moses? I mean, Moses is a guy who's been, you know, he, he grew up in, in a Pharaoh's household. He decide, he get, runs away because he kills an Egyptian who is beating up one of the Hebrews. He spends 40 years in the desert. God comes to him, burning bush. Come on, man, we're gonna go back in. He ends up going back to Pharaoh who is probably the guy he knew Growing up, and then the people of Israel get freed, and then they sin going into the promised land, and then they're in the desert for 40 years. Is that weird to you at all? That the dude who is in the desert for 40 years now is in the desert for 40 years? It's almost like God planned it. Joseph gets sold by his brothers and he goes winding tail with all these people wronging him, Potiphar's wife, and he goes into the dungeon and the baker, I mean, they, nobody wants to help Joseph. Eventually, of course, he ends up being second in command of all of Egypt at just the right time to save the people of Israel from the famine. It's almost like all the things that happened to this guy were divinely designed. So you and I, we listen to stuff about these characters and we're like, yeah, man, I can see that. You can see, whoa, you can see it. The Bible's filled with stories about the providence of God working people's lives out. But I, listen, what was true of Esther, what is true of Moses, what was true of Joseph is also true of you and me. There's not a single person. God's sovereignty extends to every single person in the room. There is not a single person who's listening to me right now who's not uniquely planted where God wants them to be. With just the gifts that you have, with just the wiring that you have, with just, with just, with just. For just such a time as this. Have you guys ever stopped and thought, though, just how, like if you were gonna do the, the job, you know, like what's your life about? Well, life's about me. Okay, I'm gonna argue that your life is about God. That he's actually the main character in, in your life and he's been weaving your life together in particular ways. Just think about all the things that you are not personally responsible for that God actually made happen in your life. <laughs> do you guys ever take those... Um, those personality inventories before, yeah? 
You know what I'm talking about? Most of you are not nodding, so I'm just, are you asleep? Um, so personality inventory, so there's the Myers-Briggs and there's the uh, strength finders. The one that I'm most accustomed to is the DISC profile. It's, I like it because it's simple. So if you go and you want to get a job or you're going to be working together with a team, a lot of times they'll give you like, hey, take this 15-minute test. They'll ask you a bunch of questions. And then you'll come out with a ranking on each one of these. Each one of these, uh, you will have a certain percentage. Now, if you are a high D, meaning that you get lots and lots of points for the D, that usually means that you're a really strong-minded leader type person. Let's go and take it. Take that hill. If you're an I, that means you love to paint and to dance. You're a very creative type person. The S's are people who tend to, high S's tend to be people who are really, they don't want to hurt a fly. They just want to be in the party and enjoy each other's company and let's just sit down and hug our coffee and talk to each other just forever. Just really focused on the people. And the C's love spreadsheets. They're the people who are keeping track of all, I have a list, I made the list, and now I have to tick the boxes in the list in order to feel good. Now, here's the thing. If you take these inventories, one of the things that you learn really quickly is that there is no right or wrong with this sort of thing. There's no like, hey, uh, you know what? If you were a real Christian, you'd be a high D. No, it's just about how God wires different people. And usually what's funny about it is that you can usually describe why it is that you don't get along with somebody else in your company or in your workplace almost entirely based upon the wiring you have. Yet you think they hate you and they think you hate them and it's only because you misunderstand each other. Because the person who is a high D, right, is like, come on, let's go take the, take the land. And the S is like, but what people will get hurt. And the D is like, I don't care about people, I care about the hill. We're taking that hill. Collateral damage. What in the world are you talking about? Let me just go and hug them. Meanwhile, you got the eyes who are just so happy about all the things we can write poems. We should write poetry today. Can you imagine the poetry that we can write to describe this fantastic moment? And the C's are over like, I don't even know what poetry is. I have a list and it needs to be ticked off. (laughs) The C's think they're helping everybody by having their list. The I thinks they're helping everyone by being just excited and creative. The S's are like, well, I help everyone because I'm a good person and I love everybody. And the D's are like, yeah, I'm trying to help this thing get off the ground. But here's the crazy thing. We all have a wiring. Do you remember when you were in the womb and God came to you and asked you, which one do you want to be here? Remember that meeting? You didn't have that meeting? Right, nobody did. Because the way you're wired is God's business. The gifts that you have spiritually, as a spiritual gift, a teacher, a leader, whatever, those gifts were given to you by God. He decided what you should have. Your entire history is yours because God made it so. There were highs and there were lows. There were great, great successes and horrible failures. And each one of those things is woven together to form a tapestry of who you are right now. Genuine disciples of Jesus Christ see God's hand everywhere. They recognize that I have been uniquely planted by God, for God, in just such a time as this. Uniquely planted. Oh, disciples, we want, we want a disciple to know, you know, how God's gifted them and made them, how, how he's been working in their life so that they can figure out what it is that he's got for them. Second, um, we, uh, they need to be deeply rooted. Um, one of the passages of scripture that you will become accustomed to if you spend any time with me is the parable of the sower. 
Um, many of you know, I, I talk about it quite a lot because I think it describes an awful lot of what, about what it looks like to follow Jesus and the pitfalls and dangers that are in our way as we continue to follow Jesus till our, we die happy in him, okay? So here's the way it goes in Luke chapter eight, verse four. When a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, so a sower goes out to sow his seed. Very common thing. Sowers have these bags of seed and they would walk in the middle of their farm on a path that was dedicated for people walking because the only way you could usually get from one spot to another was through the farms, right? They're like the back roads of the ancient world. So you, you, was, you were kind of obliged to make a pathway for people to walk in your farm. You don't want them walking on all your crops, so you make a path. So he's walking down the middle and he's on his path and he's throwing the seed. A sower went out to sow his seed and as he sowed, some fell along the path and it, and it was trampled underfoot, of course, not just by him, but by everybody. It's like the, it's like the bypass. Everyone's walking and crushing the seed and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock. That means that it had really shallow soil. Underneath there's a layer of bedrock and there's this shallow, there's just, it, it doesn't, the roots will go down, but they'll just go sideways eventually, right? Because they can't penetrate the, walk, the, the, the rock. Some fell on the rock and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Yeah, it couldn't get deep down into where the moisture was. Some fell among thorns. This is weeds, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And everyone who's ever owned a garden knows this, right? Hey, my flowers aren't there, but all the weeds are there. Right, weeds always win. Some fell in good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. That is a huge yield. Hundredfold. So as he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now the disciples at this point are like, you know what? Why are you telling stories all the time? Because we're not getting that, man. <laughs> and Jesus says, oh, guys, I'm telling you the stories because you're, they're the stories of the kingdom and you're kingdom people. You should be getting the story. So I'll help you out on this particular occasion. The parable is this. The seed is the word of God. It's the message about Jesus. It's the, it's the message about the kingdom of God invading the world. It's basically about the gospel. That's the language we use to talk about it. So when the farmer's sowing the seed, it's a person proclaiming the gospel to people and it lands on different hearts. The ones along the path are those who have heard and then when the devil comes and takes the word away from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Oh yeah, I hear your gospel. I just think it's stupid. Get lost, man. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy, right? The plant starts to grow. This is fantastic. But these have, they have no root. They believe for a while in a time of testing, they fall away. Yeah, because the hot sun comes up and it beats down on the plant and it's looking for water so that it can survive, but it can't because it just, the roots don't go down deep enough. They just don't. In order for this plant, in other words, to yield a hundredfold, one of the things it's going to have to do is find a way to get deep. My parents used to live on a little island on the, uh, just off the coast of Washington State. It's a big a waterway called the Strait of Juan de Fuca that came right in, uh, in there. I mean, the, the wind would come from the Pacific Ocean down the Strait of Juan de Fuca right at their house. Well, it lived on this bluff that overlooked the water. It was, I mean, it was mag magnificent. Just near them was this forest. And if you walked into the forest, one of the first things that you would have noticed was the, the, the rows of trees, maybe two or three rows deep, that faced the wind that was always beating on them. These trees were huge. <laughs> they were enormous. The ones behind them, though, weren't quite as big. Well, they get these massive windstorms, and usually the big trees stay up. But one year they had a, such a huge windstorm that it started to knock down some of, the some of the front trees so that the wind had access into the forest, into the inner forest itself. And the entire forest went down. I, me I remember seeing it, and there was a neighbor 
of my parents there and I came across him as I was looking at this forest. And I was like, wow, that must have been quite a wind. He said, yeah, the problem is usually these big trees on the front protect everything. They're so strong because they're always facing the wind. But the ones behind them are anemic little spindly trees that don't actually need to face the wind. So when they actually do face it, they've got no way to stand. They've got no way to stand. They just aren't strong enough. They've never faced enough challenge. They've never had to fight the wind. I, I got to tell you, I fear that so many Christians in the church today are little tiny trees with no roots. And you, and you will not finish the race. You will not reach the harvest unless those roots go down deep because I'm telling you right now, I promise you, the winds are gonna blow. They always do. On everyone. And the truth of your faith is going to be proved not when you're in the harbor enjoying, you know, a charcuterie board, but out in the middle of the ocean when the winds are blowing and you're like batting down the hatches. That's the moment that the strength of the ship is proven. I have this theory. It's just my theory, okay? So if you disagree with it, then that's fine. I mean, you're wrong, but that's just my theory, right? So here's my theory. Um, I think what's happened in the church about for the last 30 or 40 years is that you've got a number of churches that have grown up and they have adopted a particular model of ministry that's sort of like, hey, you tell us what it is that's gonna get you into church and we will do that thing. So what do you want in church? And you're like, dude, Ferris wheels. We're doing it. What would get you into church? A car show. We'll do a tar show. What's gonna get you into church? The pastor wearing $1,000 earrings. We'll do that. What's gonna get you into church? Man, I don't wanna hear any of that hellfire and brimstone stuff. And don't talk about any of these big doctrines and blah, 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 blah. I don't need that. What I need is helpful, you know, day-to-day -day stuff that's gonna help me. And so there's a whole bunch of pastors that have said, okay, we'll do that. And so their sermons basically are, hey, this, this winter, we're gonna do a series on five ways for you to get along with your drunk uncle at Thanksgiving. Now, I think that's good. I, I wanna get along with my drunk uncle at Thanksgiving. But is that the kind of thing that's actually gonna grow people's roots down deep enough that when they face trials and stuff is gonna... See, the churches got really, really big. They get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, but what they're giving people every week is this sort of anemic sort of nonsense. And so essentially what happens is it's like uh, you're preparing your team to face the NFL, uh, your, your offensive line, you're, you're preparing them to face the defensive front of other teams. And entire training camp, you're like, here's some cotton candy guys and let's just sit down and play some Sudoku. That's our training camp. Nobody here wants to lift weights or do anything. I know that. So why don't we just enjoy ourselves? I mean, you guys aren't going to come back to the training camp if I don't make it fun. So they do all the time. And then they get out there for the first day and they look like the bears. I mean, they're awful. They just get flattened. And then the coach is going to come out and go, what's wrong with you guys? But everyone should be turning to the coach and saying, what do you mean what's wrong with them? You didn't root them. You didn't feed them, you didn't prepare them for the suffering. See, my, my ministry is essentially summed up in preparing you to suffer so that you can die happy in Jesus. But your roots are gonna have to go down deep. So how are you going to make that happen? Well, I'll tell you, the Bible actually gives one word on how you can make your roots go deep. 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God's very words. And it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. These are not happy words, are they? Like you didn't wake up this morning going, you know what, I, you know what my life needs this, this, this day that God has made? More reproof. Nobody wants to be reproved or corrected or things, but the scriptures do that to you. Why? Well, in order that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every 
good work. In other words, how, how are we going to get your roots to go deep so that you are equipped to face life and live in a righteous way in response to all the things that are coming? Take up and read, man. Every single church that you ever attend should have as one of their main focuses the Word of God. That you, sh- you are not obligated to go to a place where they don't pick up the Bible and teach you what it says. Nor should you, because there is a day coming where the wind will blow and test how deep those roots go. Uniquely planted, deeply rooted, carefully pruned. So there's this passage in John 15. A lot of people kind of misinterpret it, so I'll show you how they do, in my opinion. Uh, Many of you have heard it before. I'm the true vine. It's a picture, a word picture. I am a true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So Jesus is the vine, and the father is, this is not a word we use very much. What is it, a viticulturist, gardener, whatever. The vine, the gardener. Now, the gardener in this case has got some shears or whatever, clippers, in his hand. Every branch in me or attached to the vine that does not bear fruit, he, the vine dresser, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So it doesn't matter whether or not you are dead or whether you are really alive, you're going to get snipped. Hmm? You'll be cut off if you're not, there's no fruit being born, but if not, you're gonna, you know, if, if everything's going great, you're gonna be snipped back. Now, I'm gonna tell you, if, if, I, if I were able to ask the vine, or sorry, the branch, when it's being snipped back to bear more fruit, if it's really excited about the shears coming at it, it's probably not gonna be like, oh yeah, I love being cut up, it's awesome. Nobody likes that. But it's necessary. It's not a sign that the gardener doesn't like you or rejects you. It's a sign that he has something better for you, yeah? Same idea is communicated in another passage in Hebrews chapter 12, but the image is used of a father and a son. Just listen to what it says. If it's for discipline that you have to endure. See, God is treating you as sons. They're facing a lot of heartache and difficulty. And so he's treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. You guys know people who, kids who've not been trained. (laughs) You, you, You know kids who've not been disciplined. You know them, you don't babysit them. When they call you up on the phone and say, can you come over and see little Johnny? You're like, little Johnny's the devil. So I'm not coming. Good fathers, when they see Johnny acting like a little devil, they come in and they they discipline, they, they correct. I don't do that with your kids, by the way. I'm like, if I see your kid taking a hammer to the walls of your house, I'm like, have at it, buddy. That is a good swing. But if it's my kid, I'm like, what are you doing? There's no way. Come over here. The proof that he's my kid is my willingness to discipline him. Besides this, look, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? Like God's even bigger. Like if, you're, if your father is disciplining you and it's a good thing, well, what about God in heaven? They disciplined us, our fathers, for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, our God in heaven, he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Don't you see? Aren't you glad that your father taught you not to take the fork and shove it into the electrical outlet? I'm happy. Every day I'm thinking, I had a good dad because I'm still alive. Well, what about God then when he comes along and he prunes? Is he being vindictive? Or is he being loving? All suffering 
permitted through the hands of a loving God is purposeful for his people, not vindictive toward them. All suffering. It's meant to grow something. It's meant to do something in you. See, true followers, true believers, true disciples of Jesus know that God is making them better so they don't, they don't become bitter. Because those are, those are kind of the two options. Either you're gonna submit under the mighty hand of God or you're gonna throw that hand off and say, I don't want this anymore. And the most challenging moments of your entire life will be when, the, when you're in the midst of suffering. And that's when the proof of the, it'll prove the pudding, right? The wind will come and it'll prove whether the boat's gonna stand. And you'll have a choice to make in that particular moment. Do you guys remember there's a passage in scripture that has, um, Jesus is talking about prayer and he says, what father, if his son asks for a piece of bread, gives a stone? And what father, when his child asks for fish, gives him a serpent? Your, your wicked dads know how to give good gifts to their kids that aren't serpents and stones. So how then will your heavenly father treat you who's righteous and good? Now the idea behind the whole thing is that no matter, you can ask God for something, you can pray to God for something, but whatever it is, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, whatever it is that you get is not stone but bread. I don't care if it feels like a stone. I don't care if it smells like a stone. It's bread. Feels like a serpent. No, 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 it's fish. It's always fish. So there you are, you're sitting there and you're praying, oh God, would you deliver me from this thing? Would you give me this job? Would you make her love me? <laughs> would you, like, God, give me, give me this thing. And you repeat it over and over and over and over again and God does the opposite from what you prayed. And you and I, what are you doing? And it's in this moment, it's in this moment right here where you're gonna have to make a decision about whether or not you're going to submit under the mighty hand of God or you're gonna go the other way. Most atheists that I know have a religious background and they got let down by God. Their mom died or some horrible thing happened and they're like, I'm not gonna serve a God that does this. So what are you gonna do in the moment when you're disappointed with God? Things didn't work out like you had. So either you're gonna say, he's being vindictive toward me. He is, he's hateful and capricious and terrible. We're at war. That's either that or you're gonna say, can't, it can't be a stone. It can't be a snake. It can't. I don't see it yet, but it's fish. True disciples of Jesus know this. They know that God carefully prunes us. Last one. Um, true followers of Jesus are persistently fruitful. Now, I didn't finish that passage in John 15, did I? We only read the first part of it. So let me, um, let me read to you the, the rest of it. I'm the true vine, my father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Okay, already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide. Guys, this word means continue. There are people who run around and say things like, you know what, you need to live the abiding life as if the abiding life is some qualitatively better life than the normal Christian life. It's not what he's doing here. He's not saying that. What he's saying is this word that I've spoken to you that made you clean, continue. Persist in it. Hold on to the gospel message. Keep going with Jesus. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, it continues in the vine. Neither can you unless you continue in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. This is a fact, the image is great. Here you are, you're a branch, vine, branch, Jesus. Of course, that's what you guys always think when I point to myself. Jesus, branch, fruit. What he's saying is that this fruit out here is a product of the focus that this branch has on this vine, yes? So the attention of the branch is always to 
toward the vine if the fruit's gonna grow, right? Actually, if it turns its attention toward the fruit, it doesn't grow. But if it turns its attention toward the vine, the abiding, the continuing in this relationship is what grows the fruit. And this is what he's saying. Look, I'm the vine, you're, you're the branches. Whoever continues in me and I in him, he's gonna bear a lot of fruit. Apart from me, you can't do anything. If you sever this relationship, if you don't focus on it, there's gonna be no fruit. If anyone doesn't continue or abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. But if you continue in me, and my words, the ones that were planted in you, my words continue in you. You can ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. See, by, by this my God, Father's glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so, what's that word? Prove to be my disciples. True disciples of Jesus are people who focus their attention on Jesus as their greatest love and allegiance in all things. They persist in this desire to have Jesus. They're willing to cast aside all the other stuff that competes for their attention, right? Remember that passage that I just uh, read about the parable of the soils? I didn't finish it. Here's the last part of it. As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. They go on their way and they're, they're choked by what? The cares, riches, pleasures of life. The very things that you and I want all the time, right? Riches and pleasures. I want riches and pleasures. Those are good things. But he's saying, you know, they're dangerous things because they can choke out the life of the plant. As their, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil are those who hear the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and they bear fruit with patience, with persistence. They keep going. They abide. Look, true disciples of Jesus choose to forsake all other claims to their love and fidelity. Do you know that's language for my wedding? <laughs> I remember saying it to my wife. I promised to forsake all other claims to my love and fidelity. I liked it because it was kind of high and lofty and sounded neat. It was better than, oh, I just think you're great. I'm gonna forsake all other claims to my love and fidelity. That means that there are gonna be a lot of competing factors for my attention that are gonna get in the way of my love for my wife. Some of them are good. Work, friends, all sorts of desires. Some of them are really good, but they're gonna compete for my attention with my wife. And what I'm promising her is that I'm actually gonna forsake all of those so that I can treasure her and her alone. Can you imagine if one week after our wedding, I said those words and I'm sitting down and I'm texting and he says, who are you texting? And I'm like, Janet. Who's Janet? None of your business. I'm planning on getting together with her a little bit later. Don't worry, I'm gonna come back later. It's fine. You know, there's room in my heart for all of you she's going to say, well, what, what about forsaking all their claims to my love and fidelity? See, that's the deal that you and I have. And I would, of course, she kicked me to the curb because that's, that's what it looks like to be a genuine, genuine, persistently faithful person. That's what Jesus is calling us to. He's saying, listen, I am the greatest treasure of anything, anywhere. There is nothing better than me. There, guys, there's no joy in your life that comes close to the treasure of Jesus. You should sell everything you have so you can buy that field. Or that treasure is. It's the only thing that will ultimately satisfy you. You should do anything for you. Don't forsake that treasure for the sake of little tiny ones. What are you doing? In order to do it though, you're gonna have to persist. You're gonna have to keep going. You're gonna have to say, no, listen, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna check out my life and figure out where it is that things are getting in the way of my love for Jesus. You know, there was a couple who came to me one time. Let's just finish with this. There was a couple who came to me one time when I was in a church in Los Angeles. I was preaching there for a friend of mine. And this couple came up to me and they, and they said, uh, hi, nice to have you here. It's great. Uh, we've been waiting for you to come for the last couple of weeks. Our pastor, Matt, told us that you're from... British Columbia, and I said, yeah. He said, well, we've just received uh, job offers in British Columbia, it's quite, uh, you know, a pay, a pay rise. But we have told the headhunters to wait until we could talk to you. And I'm like, what, really? 
And they said, we, we just need to know what the state of the church is in British Columbia because we're not gonna go anywhere where our faith is not gonna flourish. Have you? Listen, I've, I've talked to lots of different people and when they consider the next job, they're usually considering the pay, the location, the benefits, the blah, the, 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 the. Very few people I've ever met were saying, you know what? I'm not going there unless Jesus is gonna help us grow there. But true followers of Jesus hold the relationship that they have with him, the relationship between the branch and the vine, they hold it as primary above all things. It's what defines them. And then one day, the Lord himself parts the clouds and returns, or they lay dying on their deathbed and they fade away not into some nothingness, but immediately they're transported to standing before the, f- the very throne of God. And he looks down at them, these persistent, faithful people, and he says, well done. Don't you want to hear that? Look, if you have anything at all in your life, isn't it that? You should go to a church that's gonna try to get you to die happy in Jesus then. (gasps) I know one. At Harvest Bible Chapel, we are trying to build uniquely planted, deeply rooted, carefully pruned, and persistently fruitful followers of Christ. We would love you to come along and be the recipients of that kind of ministry and join in us as we try to build it in other people. May in the future, the memory of Harvest be just a line of disciples walking out the door and God planting them all over the world for gospel renewal. Amen, wouldn't that be great? Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful for, um, well, your word and the ways that it talks so much about following you and we don't ever probably stop and think about a lot of it. So much of it is focused on the continuing and faithfulness and these things. Lord, I pray that you would help us to forsake all other claims to our love and fidelity. And pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see your beauty and majesty so that that forsaking is easy. Ruin us, Father, for the things of this world that promise so much and deliver so little. And may we look forward to that one day. And may we hear, well done. We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.